Think about thankfulness today. Among a baby's first words, and we teach them, even before they can speak, to say ta, don't we? Many of us have been taught many, many times, don't forget to say thank you. And it's good for us. It's good to be thankful, to realize how much we have to give thanks for. And this story reminds us that also we are to think about who we are to give thanks to, our God and our Savior. Because saying thank you is also among a Christian's first words. It is a vital part of our vocabulary. We never stop saying thank you to God for who He is as our Father, as our Lord, as our Savior, and for what He's done for us in giving us Jesus. I came across this quote which I found helpful from a chap called Dustin Crow. He said, true gratitude, Christian gratitude, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has an object. We enjoy the gift and we exalt the giver. And the Samaritan that we meet today is a pattern of that, a pattern of a truly thankful life. And hopefully we can learn from him together. We have a day of thanksgiving as the church, but truly every time we gather to worship, thanksgiving should be a dominant note. We give thanks for the gospel, for his salvation that Jesus loves to seek and to save. But to think about this story, we also need to ask ourselves the question, why does Luke record the story at this point, and why does the healing take place at this moment? Because if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been on the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, and he's been speaking to huge crowds of people, and all the way along we've been seeing two different responses to Jesus. And we're being reminded of that today, that while the whole crowd are sharing privileges, and all these ten lepers share the same privileges, they see Jesus the Savior, they hear his words of mercy, they receive a miracle. Just like many in the crowd, they don't accept, they don't live thankful lives, it's just the one who comes back. And so it's important for us to consider our response to Jesus as we are gathered here together in this place. But let's look at our story, and let's see what this story has to teach us about thankfulness. First of all, as we encounter uh, the one the men describe as the master. So in verse 11, uh, we discover Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. We're being reminded he's on his way to the cross, deliberate journey and he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now, these borderlands, for most people in Jesus' day, were also the badlands. This is a place you would not want to go. Um, people were fearful of it. The people that lived there were often regarded with hatred uh, because they were not true Israelites. There was a division. But Jesus... There's that wonderful thing where he deliberately goes uh, off route, but it's exactly on his route 
his rescue mission, to extend God's grace, it takes him to this area, the borderlands, the badlands. Why is that? It's because of who Jesus is as the master. Yes, he is master and Lord, but he is the one who becomes a humble servant. He is the one who gladly welcomes the unwelcome. He gladly goes places so he can extend hope to people who were otherwise hopeless. This journey of Jesus is entirely in keeping with the purpose of his greater journey to Jerusalem, to go to the cross, to lovingly give himself as a sacrifice for people like us, for sinners, so that we might be saved. So the master that we meet in the Bible is unlike, I imagine, any other master, lord, authority figure we come across. He is the all-powerful son of God, and he is so wonderfully loving and merciful, coming to take our place. The story reminds us that we should be thankful to Jesus, the master. We're also invited to think of his mercy as Jesus was going into a village in verse 12, those 10 men who had leprosy met him and they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us or have mercy on us. Leprosy was and still is in some parts of the world a terrible disease, one that brought suffering on so many different levels. There was physical suffering as the body was literally wasting away. There was social suffering, living in a state of permanent lockdown isolation. There was spiritual suffering for a leper, unable to gather with the people of God, unable to be uh, where um, God's word would be read, where praise would be sung emotional suffering. Imagine having to declare as anyone came near, I am unclean. A horrible disease. No wonder it becomes a symbol of sin and spiritual disease. And so these men, as they recognize Jesus, the master, they cry out for mercy. They want Jesus to see their need, and they want Jesus to do something about their need. That's the wonderful thing about the mercy of God. It is loving kindness in action. The Savior that they need is the same Savior that you and I need, one who has heart, one who doesn't stay distant, one who doesn't really care about humanity and a Savior who also has power, who is able to enter into our sin and our suffering and our brokenness and to bring change. And again, that's the beautiful portrait that we get of Jesus. He brings heart and power together like nobody else. And it transforms uh, the lives of these men. And that combination of love 
and power we'll see again as Jesus reaches his destination, as he goes to the cross, and then beyond that, the resurrection. There's the, the love of God to pay the price so that we might have our guilt removed and sin forgiven and to receive eternal life. We see his power in his resurrection. And so we are thankful for the mercy of Jesus. Let's think about the miracle. Verse 14, when Jesus saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So Luke, medical doctor, also a, a notable historian, uh, carefully investigated as he wrote his gospel. And Luke is happy to simply record as they were going, they were cleansed, noting the miracle that takes place. Jesus, of course, is known as a miracle worker throughout the Gospels. All of them show uh, those signs and wonders that speak to his uh, power and authority that he's come as God's promised Savior. It's interesting, too, that non-Christian sources also recognize that Jesus was known for his mighty acts. Josephus, the Jewish historian who was no friend of, of Christians, spoke about Jesus' surprising deeds and marvels. Uh, Celsus, a Roman historian who was very anti-Christian, still had to acknowledge that Jesus' miracles were well known. Nobody was denying that Jesus was working mighty miracles. And that's significant because miracles, when you read about miracles in the Bible, they, they serve as signposts. They cluster around big moments in the story of, of God's salvation. So there are lots of miracles around the, the, the times of Moses and, and of Joshua. Miracles that bring uh, the people of Israel from being slaves to being free. Miracles that see them settled in the promised land as God promised. And then there's lots of miracles that cluster around the prophets Elijah and Elisha. They have a significant ministry of turning the people back to God. And so miracles are part of them being shown as God's spokesman. And of course, that climax is for us in Jesus, the miracle worker, because he is God, the Savior, come among us. And so we have one more miracle speaking to his identity. This is God creator who has entered into creation. This is the son of God with all power and authority over all things, including sickness and disease. This is Jesus, the one with power to heal, the one with power to save. It was a miracle that caused these men to be healed. But we also recognize that it's a miracle of grace whenever a person's life is changed. So for salvation, the miracle of salvation, the people of God should always have cause for thankfulness. The story continues. Let's think about the music that we hear in verse 15 and 16. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. So there's a note of gratitude, isn't there, that sounds loud and clear. You may be wondering, why did Jesus send the ten men to the priests? 
Um, if you read the Old Testament, you discover the priests had many functions, but one of their functions was to be almost like the health inspectors of their day um, as part of um, keeping sort of communities from contagion. Uh, they would declare someone unclean, send them away like lepers, but they would also, if they were healed, declare them clean. So, so that's why they're heading there. But on the journey, this miracle cure takes place and everything changes in a moment for these 10 men. Physically, they're made whole again. Socially, now they're able to interact back with their family. They can find a job. Spiritually, they're able to go to the temple. They're able to worship God emotionally. Now they're clean, not unclean. So that takes place. And then, as Jesus and the great crowd around him continue on their journey to Jerusalem, a song comes over the hill. A song of salvation. Here is a lone voice praising God that he'd been healed. There's a posture of humility. As the man arrives back where Jesus is, he throws himself at Jesus' feet to honor him, to show humility before him. And then he thanks Jesus from the bottom of his heart. There's a note of thankfulness that rings out in this man's life. There's another note as well. There's a note of surprise, isn't there? Luke records it for us at the end of verse 16. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Why does he include that? We've been thinking in church about the reversal theme. You've got 10 men, the least likely to be a true worshiper. Everybody said, well, it's the Samaritan guy, of course. But we're being reminded that God's grace doesn't work uh, the same as the world works. Christianity is about being saved by grace, not about merit, not about our background, not about our performance. So there's a surprise in that it's a Samaritan. There's also a note of surprise in Jesus' voice. Did you notice that? We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? All ten have the same privilege. All ten receive mercy from Jesus. All ten are the subject of a great miracle from God. All ten get to see loud and clear that, that Jesus is God's master, but those nine, while they chose, I am sure, to enjoy the gift that Jesus gave, they did it without returning thanks to the giver. They failed to return thanks to God. And so as the story concludes, Jesus said to the man, rise and go, your faith has made you well. His praise and his thankful song is a sign of his faith in Jesus in his heart. The song he sings is a song of salvation. This man has the, the deeper healing, the true healing, not just physically, but also spiritually. I wonder if anyone here today has ever been glad of a diversion? It's a, it's a ridiculous question to ask in Edinburgh because we're always getting diverted and it feels like a waste of time and it's profoundly frustrating. But sometimes, maybe you've had this experience, you, you get diverted and you come to a new place. It's a good place. Or you go off track and you meet an old friend and you have an unexpected conversation. You can say, I'm glad of that diversion. I want to suggest that Jesus' diversion into the borderlands can be one of those good diversions for each one of us. Two ways. One, it serves as a timely checkup 
for us. So leprosy, that physical disease, speaks to us a reminder of the bad news, the disease of sin. That in and of ourselves we have a sin nature. That all is not well between us and God. Left to ourselves, we cannot please God. Left to ourselves, we cannot get to heaven to enjoy life with God. There is only one cure, and it's not found in us. It's found in Jesus and his work on the cross. And it's only as we understand the bad news that then the good news makes sense. Why does Jesus go to the cross to die? It's because our sin is so serious, our guilt is so real, that the only way that we can be saved is if Jesus dies in our place. The cross also reminds us that he was so loving, he was ready and willing to die in our place, to give us true heart healing and bring us to God. It's also, this diversion also becomes a timely challenge for us. We're all privileged to have seen and to have heard of Jesus. Even if this is your first time in church, we have sung and we have read and we have heard. What will we do with that? And this is a timely challenge to say, Let's be like the one who comes with faith and give thanks to Jesus. Don't walk away like those nine, being thankful for all the things that we enjoy in life, but never thinking about our God or our Savior. That's what the story can teach us about thankfulness. But let's I take a step back, as it were, and think briefly about some lessons connected to thinking and thanking. Okay, because those two are connected. If you think about your circle, your family, your friends, the most thoughtful people you know are most likely also the most thankful and appreciative people you know. And there is an encouragement for us as Christian people to think deeply about God and his gospel that we might live thankful lives. And the spotlight is thrown on this Samaritan to help us towards that. So remember, this is a real story. Remember, as Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem, there are huge crowds, maybe thousands of people around because they're all heading towards the festival. And in the midst of that busyness and crowd, that voice breaks over them all, that song, and then he must have pushed himself through the crowd to fall at Jesus' feet, causing everyone to stop. In the healing that he experienced, his thoughts turned to the goodness and the kindness of God in the Lord Jesus. And what he wanted more than anything was to express his thankfulness in praise to the Lord Jesus. Those nine enjoyed the gift. Only this one exalted the giver. That's the lifestyle we are to practice. So how can we make progress? Let's think together about thankfulness. First of all, as a way of life. 
I love fictional detectives. I've told church that before. Uh, Sherlock, Poirot, two of my favorites. They do what I can't do, though. Even when I've reread a novel two or three times, I still can't, says a lot about me, I think, piece the clues together or learn to make the right deductions and connections. I just can't do it. Uh, but as Christians, we're called to be spiritual Sherlocks, to learn to carefully observe the evidence of God's goodness and mercy in our lives so that we would turn it to thanks and praise. And God's kindness and mercy, those clues are scattered everywhere. We have enjoyed so much kindness and mercy from God, even by the time we've got here today. Or to think of another image, we're called to be uh, like those uh, treasure hunters uh, you occasionally see perhaps on the Antiques Roadshow or they make their way onto the news. You know, they've been uh, up in the Pentlands and they discover uh, this hoard of Roman coins and you see the delight. People have been digging, hoping for treasure and they find it. That's where our thankfulness will come from as the people of God, as we dig into the rich treasure of God's word of the gospel, where we find his mercy, his living hope, his eternal life. And as we do that, to make sure that we're giving thanks and praise to our God. In the Old Testament, Moses gave a warning to Israel in Deuteronomy 8, that there's a wrong way to receive all God's kindness. Israel was warned, listen, when God brings you into the promised land and, and you've got plenty and you're at peace and everything's going well, watch out because you're going to be tempted to forget God. You're going to be tempted in your pride to say, I did that. The right way to receive all God's good gifts is with humble thanksgiving, and especially as we consider his gift of the Lord Jesus. In the New Testament, Paul says to the Thessalonians, be joyful always. Praise God continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances, whether they're good or whether they're bad. That's hard. How do we do that? Well, we can do it if we understand that God is in control of His glory and for our good in ways that sometimes we can and will not ever understand. We're able to rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances as we live in the gospel. As we're living in union with Christ, as we're enjoying him and all his benefits, life and peace and hope and joy. There's a wrong way, especially when it comes to hard circumstances to respond no bitterness and grumbling and perhaps turning away from God. I love the way Spurgeon talks about the right way to deal with hard circumstances. Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, uh, suffered from severe bouts of depression, spiritual depression, and he said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. That pain was real but he knew that God was with him and for him. Thankfulness is a way of life. But thankfulness, when we think about it as Christians, is also a way to witness. Think about our world and how many negative words and attitudes we hear every day, whether in conversation, whether 
uh, broadcast on TV, whether on social media, complaints, divisions, fighting, anger, pride. As Christ's followers, we have both a command and an opportunity to stand out, to speak with different words, to sing a different song, to be so thankful because of God and the gospel, because we're counting and naming our blessings, that it's natural for us to look for the good, to seek the good, to promote thankfulness. Because it's the way we see our world. This is our Father's world. He gives good gifts. His faithfulness is great. But I wonder, is this what the world hears from the church? Are we distinctively different in the way we're living thankful lives and speaking in such a way that that thankfulness is evident? in our conversations, in our classrooms, in our offices, is that the note we strike? As Christians, we can use what's sometimes known as the apologetic of joy. You know, we live in a place where many people are experiencing many good things, and, and one way to help people to think about God is to, to draw attention to the goodness of God, to, to move beyond, wasn't that a great meal? Aren't, aren't those beautiful stars? To help others to, to think about God through the gifts that he gives. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who, who encouraged people to trace the sunbeam up to the sun. We want to practice in our own lives thankfulness to God for his everyday gifts and to help others towards that. And we can share with thankfulness all that Jesus means to us in our everyday life. What difference it makes to have Jesus as we walk through lives and to express our thanks publicly. Because people notice and it surprises people. And it's a great way to give glory to God. And that's important because the last thing I want to say is that thankfulness is to be for us a way of worship. Gratitude is so important to faith. We're always invited to remember salvation is a gift we enjoy. God is generous. We don't deserve it. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And even that faith is not from yourselves, that it's the gift of God, not by works, so that none of us would boast unless we're boasting about how good Jesus is. The Samaritan came to understand that. And as he started thinking about the goodness of God, you couldn't stop him from thanking and praising. And as we understand that Jesus offers more than physical cleansing, that Jesus at the cross and in the gospel promises that when we have faith in him, he will remove the guilt of our sin. He restores us to relationship with God. He gives us the promise of eternity in a world free of sin and sickness and sadness forever. As we see and understand that and live in that reality, more and more we'll find ourselves like this Samaritan, falling on our faces, giving thanks, because to give thanks to God is to worship.